Welcome once again to No Apology with the Bible Idiots. It is Wednesday, and that means it is time once again for our long-form teaching. Now today, Chris is going to be bringing, I have to say, probably the best message I have ever heard Chris preach. Now he's going to Matthew chapter 8, and he's going to be talking about that story of the leper who was healed. And the title of his message is called Limited Visibility. And it's just a closer, unobstructed look at the reality of Christ, who he is, the depths of the work he has done, and the stunning reality of the mercy and forgiveness that he offers us. So I'm certain, certain, certain it's going to bless you. And so I'm going to just personally ask you to share this with your friends, your family, your coworkers, share it with one of your enemies, okay? Because I know that God's word does change the hearts of men. And I believe this message is a message that God will use to do just that. So here is Pastor Chris Danielson with his message, Limited Visibility. And today's message is really about a depth of understanding kind of thing. Okay, I, I really feel we need a refresher about diving deep, about getting focused, about zooming in. And we need the skies to clear so we can see the road that we're actually driving on. And I've been in some unreal blizzards up north, and I know that Kansas can get some weather as well. And when you can't see, it's hard to drive. When you can't see, you can't stay at speed. The worst I ever experienced in all my years was in Phoenix, Arizona, a dust storm. Do you know what they're called? They're called haboobs. And they come fast, and they come over the top of you, and you literally can't see. You could have a car right in front of you with its taillights screaming, and you can't see it. Everybody has to stop. Now, the thing about a fast-moving haboob is that it goes quick. This thing lasted 50 seconds, maybe 45 to 50 seconds, but it felt like 10 minutes. I mean, because it's just freaky when all of a sudden you're on the I-10 driving at 65 miles an hour and it's coming and everybody's slowing down and then pretty soon everybody's blind. And our spiritual walk can be the same kind of thing. And I want to get into a depth of understanding today. I want us to see clearly on certain things. See, when we have conversations with each other, sometimes when you're explaining your world, you just know the person that you're talking to doesn't feel the depth. And sometimes when people are sharing their story with, 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 with you, you know you're not getting the depth of what they're feeling. That's where empathy comes in. That's where spiritual journey comes in. I'll give you an example, another sports analogy before we get to the scripture. I tried to explain to my kids when they were younger what it was like in 87 when the Twins won the World Series. Now, you got to keep in mind that I sat in the cheap seat $2 bleachers in left field at Met Center when Harmon Killebrew was hitting home runs. And from that time all the way up until 87, we had never been in the playoffs. We were usually the worst team in the league. And yet that year, we somehow skated into the playoffs, you know, into the pennant race. We were playing Detroit in the first round, and, and, and literally there was no way the Twins could get past the Tigers. The Tigers had the best record in Major League Baseball. And yet, we beat them four games to one. And every game that we were playing was just a joy. 
because we were in the playoffs. It was unbelievable. Then we played the St. Louis Cardinals in the World Series, and we went down three games to two after game five, and we won game six and game seven. And the whole time the game six and game seven's going on, we know if we lose that game, we lose the series, and nobody cared because we were there. And then in game seven when we won the title, the whole city came unglued. It was unbelievable. Now, I'm sharing that with passion with you right now. I'm explaining it to my kids, and they want to understand, but they don't get the depth of it because they weren't there. That's limited visibility. That's the depth of understanding I want to take us into the Scriptures today. So stand with me as we read Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. Matthew 8, starting with verse 1. When he came down from the mountain, large crowds followed him. Right away, a man with leprosy came up and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Reaching out his hand, Jesus touched him, saying, I am willing, be made clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Then Jesus told him, see that you don't tell anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, let these be your words. Let, let this speak to your children now. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated, please. See, sometimes when we hear things from others, we want to have empathy and sympathy, but we don't get to that true level. Sometimes you say, oh, that's nice, and we comprehend, but actually getting it doesn't go to the depth of what's being expressed. Like, would you pray for my struggling marriage? Sure, I'll pray for your struggling marriage. Do I understand that struggle? Mm, maybe. Oh, hey, she's pregnant. Is that great news, or is that a, a you know, where, where are you coming on this? My dad has cancer. Or even the phrase, Jesus died for my sins. Am I making sense? See, based on closeness and caring, real friends can sometimes get it. And they can get it at a level. But that deep level, that depth. I want to take you through four things this morning. So you can see your walk and our walk together in a sharper color, a sharper contrast to, to make sense of what we're about, why we're here, what are we doing here, what's going on. Well, the first thing that we have to talk about as American Christians is point number one. The road we're on is narrow. The road is narrow. It starts with the fact that many folks have done a disservice to the overall message of who is Jesus Christ. They're taking the greatest person, fully God, fully man, and they tone him down into this soft dude and then take his message and twist it to be primarily about our needs of comfort, safety, and convenience. If you follow Jesus, you follow the most radical person who ever existed because he was fully man and fully God. And he marches into a world with an incredibly aggressive and assertive personality that is bluntly kind and full of peace. Full of love. And he offers mankind a whole new way of looking at the world and living in it. It's the most radical message. But we want to soften him up. And he's not. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. 
He was announcing his kingdom, and in doing so, in Matthew chapter 11, verse 12, Jesus said this, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing, and forceful men take a hold of it. In other words, God is doing something so powerful and dangerous that only those who are willing to embrace it with a forceful intensity may take hold of God's kingdom. He's not playing, and neither should we. The revolution of Jesus in our day lives is not for the wishy-washy or the middle of the road. The road is narrow, and it isn't safe as we understand safety. It isn't really comfortable as we understand comfort. It costs a great deal to legitimately surrender to Jesus Christ. Is it free? Yes. Is it liberating? Yes. Does it take you from death to life? Yes. Is it cheap? No. It's not cheap. And we have suffered as a body of believers by offering this unbelievable death to life, liberating news that is free to all and making it this cheap thing. Narrow is the gate and hard is the way that leads to life. Matthew 7, 13 and 14 says it just as clear as a bell. Yet we miss this sometimes. It says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. And then we run into churches out there that say, well, we, we take the Bible seriously, but not literally. We want to be friends with everybody. Jesus called us to be nice. Run from those churches. How about biblical principles to maximize your life and living? Four great steps to a better Christian you. And I'm not against biblical principles. See how Jesus intends for us, but this slogan is lame compared to what follows actually surrendering to Jesus' invitation becomes what it really is. For those who have actually stood, for those of us in this room, and I know many of you have, and you know I have, we have stood in that cold, honest place, and we've looked right into the darkness of our own souls and the wickedness of our broken hearts. Are biblical principles enough? No. I don't need enhancement. I don't need, a, I don't need to, to find out that there might be a better me. I need a new heart and a new mind. That's what this is about. I need the king of kings to invade my life and take it over. I don't want religion or principles or fake pretense. I want him. I'm empty. I'm not in this game for some new and improved self. I want something entirely different. I want to lay hold of the total revolution of Jesus Christ. And I want to get washed from the inside upside down. But what I want is costly. It's not easy. Jesus' promises life with him and a renewed soul, heart, and mind, and to live forever. And those results are not cheap, my friends. Point number two. The road is risky. The road is risky. 
Knowing Jesus, you will quickly find out he was always inviting us to go deeper and deeper into his eternal salvation, asking us to hold on to him tighter with greater intensity and purpose. You want to know why I don't run from a lot of the stuff that we've been called to? Some of the stuff that you think is probably going to fail? Some of the stuff that may not look like what you think it's going to look like? My vision for coming to Lifehouse Church, a lot of it was right on. Come as you are, people, salt of the earth, a lot of us wanting to know Jesus. A lot of it was totally off base. Or how about having a, uh, an opportunity to do a TV show I didn't want, couldn't afford, didn't have time for? I, and, and you, maybe you can add your own stuff. We can add in about five other things. that It just doesn't look like what we think it's supposed to look like, but we want to be obedient. Why? Because I will go with Jesus. I will go with him on any adventure that he calls me to. Because sometimes he takes us down a path. Uh, he, he just likes to. I think, I think God enjoys taking us down a path where we're going to surely fail. Now, that doesn't sound American. We're not going to grow our church. Come to Lifehouse where we teach you how to fail. But that's what Jesus does. You know, he wants to see, are we going to be obedient? This thing doesn't really matter. I'm only using that to see if you're going to be, be obedient because i got something else for you. How do we know what that is? Well, we go on the adventure with him, and he shows us. Think about the fishermen being told to cast their nets on the other side of the boat. Or think about uh, going out in mid-afternoon. Remember when Jesus told them to do that? No one ever catches fish in mid-afternoon, yet they go out and have a great catch. C.S. Lewis says of Jesus, he says, he isn't safe, but he is good. So what keeps us from a life of such deep faith? What holds us back from having that deep faith where we just want to go on that adventure with Jesus? One reason is that as Americans, we are so skilled at assessing and minimizing risk. Our culture, the whole deal here in America, in my lifetime growing up, is risk management. We want to hedge our bets all over the place of life. We want every kind of insurance offered, health insurance, life insurance, car insurance. We wear seatbelts and helmets, and you know, soon I'm going to go to the airport and there's going to be people wearing four or five masks. Now, those things are good. I'm actually a pro-mask wearer. I, I, whenever we go to the airport, I always have my mask, and I like it. I wear seatbelts. I'm all about seatbelts. You ever been T-boned at a green light when somebody just blows right through? I did, 1991. I wear my seatbelt, no problem. I have car insurance. I, have, I, I, I would even like nicer health insurance. <laughs> so there's nothing wrong with those things. But I understand the value of those things. But the point is, we have become people who focus on minimizing and managing risk in every area of our life. If I see risk, I have to minimize it. That's what the culture says. And add to it, we love the illusion of danger, just not the real thing. I can ride in a roller coaster and feel out of control while I'm buckled safely in my seat. Yesterday, I won another NASCAR race at Watkins Glen. Bounced off the wall twice, didn't even hurt. I had no damage on my car, passed everybody, won the race. But during that race, it's intense. You get the feel of the, of the vibe. You get what I'm saying? We want Jesus the same way. We want all reward and no risk. 
Many times people don't give themselves fully over to Jesus because we're afraid he will send us to some third world country or ask us to be poor or have us do some other uncomfortable thing. And we want this illusion of faith as long as we're safe. Listen to me. Walking with God by faith is not a no-risk proposition. It is truly one of the most dangerous things you can actually do. Risk is inherent in authentic faith. Risk and faith cannot be separated, but here's the deal. When you go all in with Jesus, what do you get? What are you risking? Why is it so, so awesome? to take this adventure with Jesus. God says, by faith I can be pleased by no other way. The only way we please God is by trusting him and having faith. Here's the thing. You get two very cool things. You get, number one, it is well with you. It is well with you. You get that washing over you in the midst of heartache, in the midst of stress, in the midst of financial ruin and financial success, in the, in the midst of this failure and this success. The circumstances aren't your God because Jesus is your God, so it's well with you. Lifehouse can grow to be a thousand-member church, and it'll be well with me. Lifehouse can drop down to 12 people and I have to go buy vocational. I told Gadget I'll drive a truck with him if I have to, and it'll be well with me. Because I'm not here to do anything but feed the lambs that God has given me. Whoever walks through that door is going to get good food when they come to Lifehouse. And I ain't talking about the potluck after the service either, although that'll be good. I'm talking about the fact that Jesus said, Feed my lambs. And where do you want me to go, Lord? Abilene, Kansas. All right, let's roll. And it is well with me. Is it well with you? That's what you get. Number two, you get the deep, 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 did I mention deep love your soul craves? Yes, yes, when you go all in with Jesus, you get what we all want, what we all desire, what we all crave, true love the true, pure, awesome love that can only come from our Creator God and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we, as fallen human beings, want to take that and we want to create some sort of religious system to operate out of. You say, we can't be that stupid. Oh, really? I think we are. See, religion can't come close, and that's point number three today. The road is away from religion. The road is away from religion. Once I realized how awesome Jesus really is, once the vision lifted and I had limited visibility go away and I saw, it changed everything when I saw who Jesus really is. I began to read the Bible differently. I noticed the ones who Jesus was giving the business to, who the Lord criticized severely, were the Pharisees, and they were incredibly religious. The Pharisees, these jokers, they took 610 laws from the Hebrew Scriptures and added over 1,500 other rules to follow. 
Oh, these, these cats, they were stout in their devotion. They prayed, they fasted, they tithed, they sought converts, they memorized, they taught. They had all kinds of activity. Yet our Lord had his biggest smackdown reserved for these peeps right here. He called them snakes and fakers, hypocrites and blind guides. And you think I'm abrasive? He, he said harlots and thieves were going to get into the kingdom of heaven before them to their face. One would have a hard time overstating how offensive and critical Jesus was to their face about how out of bounds they were with their whole approach to serving the creator God really was. He loved them, no doubt. Many, 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 many of them came to faith in him. But he straight up condemned any attempts at self-justification through religious performance. Let me say that again. Jesus straight up condemned any attempts at self-justification through religious performance. Jesus even went so far as to compare empty religion that it is more dangerous than outright immorality. He went to compare that this kind of empty religion stupidity is worse than outright immorality. Do you have a scripture to back that up, Chris? Well, as a matter of fact, I do. Matthew 21, 28 through 31 says it very clearly. He says, what do you think? A man had two sons. He went to the first and said, my son, go to work in the vineyard today. He answered, I don't want to, but later he changed his mind and went. Then the man went to the other and said the same thing. I will, sir, he said, but he didn't go. Which of the two did his father's will? They said, the first. Jesus said, truly I tell you, tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you didn't believe him. Tax collectors and prostitutes did believe him, but you, when you saw it, didn't even change your mind then and believe him. Matthew Henry wrote a commentary in the late 1600s, early 1700s. He said this, he said, here Jesus reproves them for their contempt of John's baptism. For yet the fear of the people they were not willing to own. In other words, they couldn't own it because they were afraid of what other people might think about them and their religiosity. Do you not see that in our culture? Same thing. To shame them for it, Jesus set before them faith, repentance, and obedience of the publicans and harlots, which aggravated their unbelief and lack of respect as saying that they are less likely to have repented, even though when they watch those others repent. It's an amazing thing. Do you see it? Do you see what Jesus is saying there? Jesus told them they were missing the kingdom because of their religiousness. They were so focused on doing this right and avoiding that wrong and keeping score and pronouncing judgment, they missed their Messiah completely. Even going so far as to accuse Jesus of being Satan's front man, his guy, rather than acknowledging him as Lord. We have the opportunity to look at biblical things, to look at how Jesus has changed our lives. And there are some things that we put into place that are common sense. But then religiosity takes over. There's a thing called church discipline that's legitimate. There's a thing called making a covenant with each other that's legitimate. And there's certain rules that we want to follow that way because the Bible has taught them that. But to take them beyond that, like what the scribes and Pharisees done, is what our culture has done all through the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and into the 2000s. 
and it keeps morphing into something else. And now we have churches out there that says it doesn't really matter what you believe. You can do anything you want. We like Jesus. He's a good guy. We'd like to add him to our life. And Jesus says, no, I'm going to be the whole life. I'm not going to be life at all. Narrow is the way. Hard is the way. And see, this context helps us as we move to the fourth point today. And when you have your eyes open to these truths, it is wonderful, but it'll also reveal the fact that we're chosen. We're a chosen people. Do you remember how great it was to be picked at the playground? Or how about when, in marriage when he or she picked you? The invitation to a party or a trip with friends, that's awesome, that being chosen, that being picked. And then there's the awfulness of being rejected. The joy, the joy of being chosen and the pain of rejection is what sets up point four today. And that is number four. The road is filled with whosoevers. The road is filled with whosoevers. I think that it's hard to, sometimes for Christians to really totally suppose that we understand the depths of the grace which, which we claim surrender. When we surrender to God's grace, I think that there's a depth there that sometimes escapes us. And it's called baby Christians. It's called infant Christians. And that's why Paul talks about how you have to eventually get into meat. You eventually have to grow. And when we have this clear road and the veil is lifted, it's, it's an unbelievable thing. But many times as Christians, we ourselves suffer from limited visibility because of what we've done to ourselves. So I want to take you, as we bring this message home today, I want to take you to the Bible times. And the Jews not only divided the world into Jews and Gentiles, but also within the Jewish culture itself. And they did the whole deal about who is ceremonially clean and who's fit to go to the temple to sacrifice. And those who were ceremonially unclean, they had to, they had to determine that. Legitimate. But that's when they took it and pushed it farther. They pushed that divide us concept out from there and they took labels and applied it to someone if they were technically ritually unclean and unfit to offer sacrifice and then began to regard other jews as simply unclean stay with me now this is important they would take the people who were technically ritually unclean a legitimate thing but they would push it to view the entire person as unclean what did this do it took a set of laws designed to remind people of God's holiness and provision, and it became a catalyst for exclusion and elitism. We do the same thing. The Jews had a phrase they would use to describe people who were unclean. It's called Am Ha-Eretz. Am Ha-Eretz. The phrase in Hebrew means people of the land, and it designates a person as untouchable and unredeemable. Amha Eretz, untouchable and unredeemable. Think on that. It was commonly taught that the blind, crippled, and lame were Amha Eretz because their deformity was a result of their sin or their parents' sin. See John 9 through that lens and it'll be wide open to you. It was widely understood by the religious that disabled people were simply getting what they deserved. Same went for the poor. Sure sign of God's displeasure. So if you're clean, one of the best ways to stay that way was to avoid the unclean. I mean, come on. The unclean would contaminate the clean. So you 
got to stay away from Amha Eretz. Once someone became unclean, it was hard to move beyond the label because no one would come near. So the rules were strict. You had to keep from being contaminated. Never go into a house with a Gentile. Never touch a deformed person. Never share a meal with a sinner and so on. This is the heartless religious setting that Jesus walked around in. Sharing this radical message that the kingdom of God is available to everyone no matter who they are or no matter what they've done. This was unconditional true love on a display for all to see and hear. And in John chapter 3, Jesus has this incredible discussion with a Pharisee named Nicodemus. And it's in the middle of this discussion that Jesus uncorked the best-known words in the Bible, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever, whosoever believes in him shall not perish but we'll have eternal life. Now, do not miss this awesome word. It's in the announcement, whosoever. Now, think of the impact this would have had on Nicodemus. He's a Pharisee. He's a stone-cold expert on knowing who was in and who's out. Old Nicky must have been sitting there thinking, is this guy serious? Whosoever? Whosoever believes it? Does he mean women? Does he mean Gentiles? Does he mean Amha Eretz? Jesus not only talked it, but he walked it. He demonstrated whosoeverness as he approached the cast-offs to offer them healing. That's why the Gospels are so alive. He gave them wholeness. He gave them forgiveness. And the leaders hated him for it. And 2,000 years later, we still see it. I'm going to give you two examples of whosoeverness as we close today. I I want to take you deeper. I want to lift the veil here. Let's get some visibility. Let's start with Zacchaeus, the tax collector. Now, if you grew up in the church, you probably remember the Bible camp song, Zacchaeus was a wee little man. And for obvious reasons, I hate that song. (laughs) But let's get one thing straight right now. I would tower over this guy, okay? I'm not the tallest guy in the room, but I'm not climbing a sycamore tree short either, okay? (laughs) Sorry. Luke's account of Jesus' interaction with him was not on how short he was, but how wicked he was. Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector. He was bad on many levels, and for the Jewish culture, this was an awful human being. He was a Jew that worked for the Romans to keep down the fellow brothers, and he was despicable in the eyes of the entire community. It was estimated that 12.5% of all incomes and crops would go to Rome, but the collectors could impose more and take it all. The fact that he was a shorter in stature in that culture meant that he had even more power and even more wickedness and even more people under his financial control. A lot of you probably missed that. See, the Jews could do nothing about it. Or they would face a harshness we don't truly understand in this country. So this guy is a huge reason why so many local Jews are poor. And while he lived in luxury and wealth beyond what was imaginable for that day, and it's hard to see clearly how hated this man and his kind were in that day. Not only are they Amha Eretz, 
but they are viewed as the lowest scum of society. So much so that in Luke 15:1, it goes so far as to make a distinction between tax collectors and sinners. Luke 15:1, look it up later. Sinners are not as bad as tax collectors. In the Zacchaeus story, we see Jesus pick the most disgusting and vile person he could find and announce that salvation was available and had come to him. That's amazing. The religious of the day had said you had to be ceremonially clean to approach God. Jesus flips this and he claims that the kingdom of God was at hand. It's at hand. And that you could approach God as you are. And he made you clean. Don't you see? We come every Sunday to celebrate a whirlwind of revolutionary grace. Look who Jesus reached. The blind, the lame, the deaf, the demon-possessed, Samaritans, Gentiles, Romans, women, paralyzed, any and all who were Amha Eretz. Lastly today, I want to look at something else because if the leper, uh, if the tax collectors are the most hated, the leper was the most revolting. Lepers were forced out of their homes. They were disowned by their families. They excluded from all forms of society. Rejection at a biblical leper level I don't think has ever been experienced in our modern culture. They were not allowed to work. They had to live outside the city, usually with other lepers. They were never physically touched, and they were cut off from normal human contact. If they came within 100 feet of anyone, the people, either the lepers or the others, were required to warn them, yelling, unclean, unclean, unclean. Children would throw rocks at them and adults would spit at them. Think about that. So I want to read the text again. Just verses 2 and 3 as we close today. With the knowledge that I just shared with you, I want, to, I want you to lift the limited visibility you have. I want you to get in touch with your inner Amha Eretz. And I want you to hear the brokenness in this request. Two verses out of our text, two and three. Right away, a man with leprosy came up and knelt before him saying, Lord, if you are willing, can you make me clean? Reaching out his hand, Jesus touched him saying, I am willing, be made clean. Immediately, his leprosy was cleansed. Do you see what Jesus did there? He touched this man. He touched him. He could have easily said, he's Lord. He could have easily said, be clean. He did that a bunch of other times. Just be clean. And the man would have been healed. But Jesus reached out and touched him. That is staggering. That is staggering in that culture. And if we get our minds around it and we see that he's touched us and our Amhael Herods as well, we will be joyful. Our Amha Eretz is all around us until we're touched by Jesus. You never touch a leper if you want to stay clean. Can you imagine what kind of joy that leper would have had when he went home to his family to again be able to attend the temple, feel human action again? Absolutely off the chain joy. This guy would just be ecstatic. And I know that feeling of being surrendered to Jesus and being saved and having Jesus take my Amha Eretz away. And then I get 
caught up in the emotions of the day, in the frustrations of this, in the circumstances of that. And Jesus says, no, you're not driving in a blizzard today. No, there's no dust storm coming over you today. You have clear vision. I am your Lord. I am your King. Trust me. Before we were Amha Eretz, so now we cannot get so churched or so culturized or so rules and judgment bent that we miss out on the true grace and life in Christ. Now, the thing that happens when we talk about this is then we throw all rules and all, all structure out the window, and that's not what's supposed to happen here. There's supposed to be a balance between truth and love. I've been talking about that since the day I walked into this town. Jesus' body and blood were broken and shed for us to redeem us, even at our worst. So we want to err on the side of grace and keeping our door open for those who have wronged us. And when we wrong somebody, we want to aggressively repent of that. That's how this really functions. That's how this really works. Do you believe this? Do we really want to live this out? Do we want to have authentic purpose? Because if you do, you've come to the right place. Because that's what we're going to do here. If there's 10 of us, that's what we're going to do here. If there's 1,000 of us, that's what we're going to do here. If we do videos, we'll do videos. If we have a better band, we'll have a better band. If if I'm ever singing up here, you know things went horribly wrong. <laughs> to live this out, to proclaim and hold to this authentic purpose, to do anything else is to preach a false gospel. I am excited for every one of you that wants to walk this road with Emily and I that I just laid out for you. We are excited that you're here. And we will preach the authentic gospel. And we will say, may his kingdom come. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to our Sunday message. To donate, request prayer, or to contact Pastor Chris, you can write to Lifehouse Church at P.O. Box 661, Abilene, Kansas, 67410, or go online at lifehouse-church.com. On behalf of the entire congregation, thanks again for your support.